Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Cause I'm just a teenage dirtbag, baby. Yeah, I'm just a teenage dirtbag, baby. Listen to Iron Maiden, baby, with me. Ooh. Hello! This is the Relunchables Podcast. I'm Jordan Holzer proudly part of the Believe Podcast Network. And each episode will be covering 90s, 2000s, film, TV, and pop culture. I am not alone. Each episode, I'll be having on special guests to help me relive my childhood. Thank you to Weedis for the intro music. This week, we are joined by the writer of Airbud, Aaron Mendelson. We touch on everything from how he got involved with the film to why this film resonates with audiences 20 years later. I even pitch him some ideas for some Airbud sequels, considering there's been like 20 films. Why not an Airbud esports movie? Just a little teaser there. At the end of the interview, we discuss what is happening at the Writers Guild right now, since Aaron serves as secretary treasurer, and there's been a lot going on in relation to writers firing their agents in an effort to get rid of packaging fees. Don't worry. You don't need to understand what any of that means in relation to the entertainment industry to follow along with our conversation. Next week, we are going to be joined by Elisa Reyes. Elisa was one of the original cast members of one of my favorite shows as a kid. I am talking about all of that, which was the SNL for our generation, and also voiced La Cienega Boulevardes on The Proud Family, which has been in the news recently because it's coming back on Disney+. Anyways, let's get into my interview with the writer of Airbud, Aaron Mendelson. From Walt Disney Home Video. Ain't no rules in the dog can't play basketball. Y'all ready for this? His games got bite. Can someone cover that dog? His style is slick. Does he dribble? No, but he might drool a little bit. And his shot is right on the nose. On December 23rd, the fur will fly. Disney's Air Bud. Rated PG. Own it on video. We have to remain optimistic, though. And that's why we're watching Air Bud. That's why we're talking about it, because sometimes it's nice to take a break from what's going on in the real world and kind of stepping back and reliving, you know, an amazing film, to be honest with you. Just uh, I know you get this all the time, probably, but something that still resonates. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate that. It's uh, nice nice of you to say that. Um, I appreciate it. You were actually not the first choice for the podcast. We really tried to get Buddy on the podcast, but it was really, you know, it really broke my heart to see that he passed away shortly after shooting. So you have, you were the consolation prize. I'm sorry. You know, the funny thing is that, that, uh, and I appreciate that. I would have, um, Buddy would have been a much better interview, by the way. He's very <laughs> funny and, uh, and very charming, much more charismatic too. Yeah. He had a long rider though. You know, he wanted all these things, all the, you know, you know, water bowl next to the set and all these different things. So it was too tough to accommodate him. Yeah, exactly. The, the, uh, chocolate covered, uh, <laughs> and all that. Yeah. The puddings. <laughs> Puddings, but it has to be vanilla pudding. You know, when we made the film, when we wrote the script, we originally wrote that it was chocolate pudding. And uh, we got all the way up to shooting. And then the, um, uh, his uh, trainer said, uh, you know, dogs can't really have chocolate. Yeah. And so we changed it to, uh, you know, on the spot, changed it to vanilla pudding. <laughs> and uh, I don't think it really uh, changed things that much in the, uh, in, the, in the story, in the movie, but it was a matter of life and death for Buddy. <laughs> I swear to God, that's not what killed him. So uh, no, it was not chocolate pudding that killed that dog, I promise. <laughs> it wasn't the ice cream cone he devours also in the film. It was, it was not that. Not the ice cream. It might have been the uh, strenuous, uh, you know, 20 hours of day, a day <laughs> basketball uh, shoot that might have done it. But uh, no, I'm kidding. I was also so disappointed to find out that it's not on Disney+. Plus. That's, I don't know if it's a rights issue or what happened there, but it was really frustrating having to go on Amazon or YouTube and try to watch it. I don't quite know. You know, a lot of the other um, Buddies films, I think the Puppies yeah. uh, films, I don't know if any of the other Air Buds. No, none of the Air Buds are on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. You know, they're talking about remaking it um, or, or rebooting it. So it's possible that for whatever reason they're holding off or maybe it's a rights thing. Uh, it's not something that I'm aware of why it's on or off. It's, it's not my dispute. Um, 
the it's possible that it it has to do with the uh, the owner of the dog, um, the original Buddy and and Disney. But you know they they always have their their reasons for uh, doing things or not doing certain things. So I I don't know what the reason is. It is disappointing because it'd be nice to have those uh, that residual stream. <laughs> uh, I'm not even sure if it's on Netflix anymore. It used to be. Yeah, no, it's not on Netflix. Yeah, it was really difficult. I just had to rent it and, you know, pay the $2.99 on Amazon to watch it. Oh, well, sorry about that. Although I appreciate the, (laughs) um, you know, one cent residual it did send me for that. (laughs) So I kind of want to go all the way back. And just from doing a little bit of research on you, I found out that you grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, which is not a, a common place from, you know, Anchorage, Alaska to Hollywood screenwriter. So I know you moved to Maryland at some point, but what was it like growing up in Alaska? Oh, it was great. Um, we were kind of the original Northern, Northern exposure, uh, story. Uh, we, uh, I was born in California. My dad, um, was, a, is a psychiatrist and they needed desperately needed psychiatrists in Anchorage, <laughs> in all of Alaska in the seventies. There weren't a lot of them. Yeah. Seasonal affective yeah. disorder, right? <laughs> totally. That was just one of them. That was, you know, there was a whole list of uh, disorders that you get from living in Alaska, particularly those long winters. And he was a child psychiatrist. So there was only like one other child psychiatrist in the state. Oh, wow. So we moved up there and it was, uh, again, it was like Northern Exposure, this Jewish family from the city, <laughs> from California, yeah. moving to the wilds of Anchorage, which was not much of the wilds, but uh, it was different, but it was really, really fun. I mean, it truly was like living um, right next to the wilderness because you really were. It's not like being, you know, a couple hours from Yosemite. You're, you're actually next to wildlife in the wilderness. So it was really, I think it was really bracing and um, uh, um, empowering to grow up there. Then I moved to Maryland and it all went to hell. And now I'm just a softy who's been living in the city and complains about the cold. It gets below, you know, 60 degrees in LA. I'm like, ah, oh, it's too cold. I'm a New York transplant myself and I can completely relate to that. Now when I go back and I remember like growing up, I used to play around in like 40 degree weather. I was in shorts and a t-shirt. And now if it ducks below 70, I'm like bundled up. I got the winter coat on it. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly you lose it. Yeah, it's pathetic. Really. <laughs> it really is. So I kind of want to ask you, I know you went to UCLA, but when did that passion for, you know, movies and film and, you know, TV really start for you? It started when I was five years old. Um, and I wrote, <laughs> oh, sorry, my dog is uh, behind me. Uh, not Buddy, but another dog. <laughs> um, uh, it started when I was five years old. And uh, she's, she's piping in. With the, with the dog's point of view. Hey, quiet. I'm on a podcast right now. Hey, lazy. Honestly, it's fitting for this podcast for that to happen. Hey, quiet. She's uh, commenting on the, you know, the, the uh, particular aesthetics of, uh, of her bud and what she, you know, didn't agree with it. Hey, someone's at my door. You might have paused your, uh, your podcast. Three hours later. Sorry, Jordan. Oh, um, good. My little dog got out of the house. Oh, really? And, uh, was in the street. Oh, God. Roaming in the street. So uh, You don't want another family to just, you know, pick them up like, you know, Buddy and Air Bud. You know, maybe I'm the clown. Maybe. Maybe I don't even know it. And I'm the clown. <laughs> That family is going to rescue my little dog from an oppressive, uh, you know, horrible life where I'm throwing balls at her face. Yeah. It sounds terrible. <laughs> I know. I want to get to that. It was much darker on the rewatch, I have to say. <laughs> you know, we, we tried to insert a little edge in there, uh, but uh, Disney took out all the dark stuff, you know, the, yeah. uh, the dog abuse and the, uh, you know, all the innuendo was taken out. What could we do? Yeah, even the possible beer commercials for Buddy. I'm like, wow, this is uh, this is PG. <laughs> I know. We uh, the only reason it ended up being PG, they wanted G, but at some point, I think a uh, parent in the or one of the characters says, "What the hell is going on here?" <laughs> and because of that hell, that one hell, uh, uh, Disney gave it a PG. 
rating, which is fine because what kid wants to go to a G movie? Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> so you were talking about just finding your love for movies and television and ultimately leading down your path of screenwriting. Before I was rudely interrupted by that dog. That <laughs> dog. Um, yes, I knew I wanted to be a screenwriter when I was five years old and I wrote a story uh, for my kindergarten class about a man-eating uh, Venus flytrap. Oh, wow. Long, Little was, Shop of I, Horrors? I, I wasn't even aware of Little Shop of Horrors, but I wrote my own. Uh, and, uh, and I knew that I was going to go to UCLA and study screenwriting and be a screenwriter since I was five years old. And, uh, and that's what happened. Wow. Just kind of, uh, I kind of wish that when I was five years old, I, I was playing doctor like all the other boys yeah. and, uh, and became a doctor. <laughs> Did your uh, did your parents support that path? Did you ever want to go into the you know family business of pursuing you know medicine, or were they okay with you kind of going this crazy route and going out to Los Angeles? They were okay with it. My dad, who is a doctor, was a frustrated artist. He wished that he could have been a singer. Actually, he oh, really wow. is a beautiful operatic uh, tenor, and always wanted to go into uh, into singing. But his parents didn't allow it. They wanted him to be a doctor. So they were more than both my mom, and my dad were more than supportive. Um, and for a while they were financially supportive <laughs> things started to click. Yeah, sure. So I kind of want to go, I know I'm jumping around a lot, but I want to go right into Airbud. And I know, uh, Kevin DeChico, who is Buddy's owner, I think started Airbud Productions and then took it to Keystone Entertainment and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. And I think that's kind of the impetus and the Vince brothers, you know, were kind of the producers who kind of got into this. When did you come aboard this project? When did you find out about it? Pre-Keystone, uh, um, the way that, uh, that I found out about it, so my old writing partner, Paul Tamasey, now the Academy Award nominated uh, Paul Tamasey, it, it took uh, him and me splitting up as <laughs> writing partners for him to really find uh, artistic success. Um, but that we means were, you have good taste in finding a partner, though. He does have good taste in finding, I'll give him that. Oh, I have good taste. I said, yeah. <laughs> yes. um, my wife would agree with that. Um, so we were partnered in the 90s. Uh, we went to UCLA together and uh, met at UCLA. He was in the acting department. I was in the, in the, uh, uh, in the film department. And um, we started writing together and, um, you know, uh, wrote a lot of crappy stuff that didn't sell at first. The first thing we ever sold was a pilot. Uh, we got the rights to a book and for a buck and sold a pilot to Fox. So the first thing was like drama TV. Oh, wow. Um, although we were interested in kids uh, in family films. And then we got this agent um, who uh, is like, you know, was, uh, sorry. All these interruptions, this life <laughs> just comes in. Um, so we had this agent at the time, it was kind of a small agent and it was kind of a tough, tough guy who sort of was a cliche. He, <laughs> he, uh, so one day Paul went to visit the agent. I wasn't there. And the agent had a dog buddy in his office. He said, Paul, Paul, you got to check out this dog. This dog is, he's amazing. He's, he's uh, his name is buddy. And he's David Letterman's favorite stupid pet trick. Yep. He's been on the show like three times. Uh, he's obsessed with balls. <laughs> and uh, which, which, of course, raised uh, uh, Paul's eyebrows. But then um, <laughs> Kevin DeChico was there. And uh, my agent had just signed the dog. <laughs> Tells you uh, where I was at in my career at the time. It was like Broadway Danny Rose. I was with the agent that signed dogs. Had signed chipmunks, <laughs> and we're like fifth or sixth down. Anyway, you were his first priority, though, right? Not Buddy. That's what he told us. <laughs> However, he got Buddy more money than we. What? Than two of us, two humans. Oh. He, got, he got Buddy more money. So he collected that, you know, the packaging fee there on Buddy and the writers. I want to get into the WGA stuff later too, but he got that packaging fee right there. He did, although that that's an acceptable packaging fee because. <laughs> Yeah, he, he did getting, something, right? He did something for, and he got the commission from the artist rather than getting paid by the studio to package the film. But we'll, but then more on that later. <laughs> uh, so Paul was there, 
uh, the agent signed uh, Buddy, and Kevin showed Paul how Buddy would uh, be like focused on balls and like, and he said, Buddy can shoot baskets. So then we got together with Kevin and a Buddy and for a demonstration and saw how Buddy could actually shoot baskets like he does on David Letterman. So Barry, my agent, convinced us to write a script for the dog. And so Paul and I got together. We're like, this is really is a stupid pet trick. <laughs> yeah. So what kind of movie are we going to write around this? Because it's, it's kind of ridiculous. And we realized there's an opportunity to write um, kind of your classic boy and dog movie. Yeah. And uh, to really make it um, more kind of, emotionally engaging and moving than uh, one would assume from that that trick that he does and I think what really made it work is that we vowed to ourselves in the story that everything that Buddy does he does for the boy that it's about and if you remember in the movie when Buddy shoots the basket for the first time it's after the boy had uh, come home from school and he was upset because he he uh, wasn't going to do basketball tryouts. He's too afraid. He's yep. a new kid at the school, misses his dad who's dead. Um, and, you know, the dog knows he loves basketball, senses the boy is sad, shoots the basket in order to really kind of like engage the boy again, yeah. get him happy and passionate about it again. And that eventually leads to the boy trying out for the team. So, again, everything the dog does, he does out of love for the boy, not because you know, he, he is obsessed with basketball, though he loves <laughs> basketball, but he loves playing basketball with the boy. That's what makes Bud. That's what fulfills Buddy. Gotcha. And I think by kind of like identifying the emotional core of the movie and really the, the core relationship of the film, I think it made the film work. Oh yeah. And I was just going to, that was my next question was, you could easily make this just a basketball movie, right? And it definitely would not have resonated 20 years later because of the emotional beats, like you mentioned, of the film. And it's really, honestly, I hate, I, it's a shame to admit it. I was like tearing up yesterday watching the film, especially when Buddy runs in the last, you know, the last minute of the basketball game runs in and, uh, you know, subs in there and they pull out the rule book and they're like, what? There's nothing in here that says a dog can't play basketball. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, that emotional beat is something that still resonates and, I'm curious, were there early iterations of, of drafts that were mostly, was it focused on basketball? I was also surprised rewatching how few basketball scenes there were. Like I remember like Buddy on the team, breaking people's ankles, but there's not a lot of Buddy playing basketball in the actual film. So I was just curious if you kind of had to figure it out, like as, as you were writing drafts of the film, what worked and what didn't. Interestingly, the spec that Paul and I wrote is very close to the finished film, at least story-wise. Um, we, but when it got set up independently and, you know, was made for 4.7 million, which isn't bad. I mean, yeah. you know, in 1996 or 97, when it was shot, that was a decent independent budget, but it wasn't a lot. So we had a pretty quick schedule. So I think there was, there might've been in, you know, one of the iterations of the script, more basketball, but it had to be trimmed out. Uh, because, you know, big crowd scenes and, and kids on set and all that um, create limitations. You know, but I don't think we really, you know, the story didn't change that dramatically between, you know, we had the janitor who was the ex-basketball player who replaces the coach. We had the clown. We had you know, I remember when we were writing the script, we had a little bit of a challenge with the double climax. You've got the climax of the final basketball game yeah, and the then courtroom. the climax of the courtroom scene. And we're like, ah, we've really backed ourselves into a corner. And in, I think at one point we had them flip-flopped where it was, you know, they had to deal with the final, the courtroom <laughs> scene and then go and do the final basketball game. But it, I think at that point, at some point, one of the, later on in the, you know, one of the final iterations had us uh, changing that around. A big thing that made the film really amplify and work even better was Charlie Martin Smith, our director. Um, so time-wise, um, we wrote the spec for the agent. 
uh, and Kevin. We, you know, Kevin would tell us what uh, Buddy could do, and we worked in some of Buddy's other uh, abilities into the into the script. He was a remarkable dog. Um, sweet, sweet dog. Already by that point, he was like nine, ten years old. Yeah, he was a know? lot older. I was surprised to find that out. And also, I guess that kind of answered it, just communicating with Kevin. But I was like, it must be tough to write something where you don't know if the dog could actually do it. Like, can the dog jump out of a window of a house and jump down to the ground and get a newspaper and bury it and, you know, do all these tricks on the basketball court? That was always a question. And that's why they did have to bring in a trainer who had other dogs who could do some of the things. And you'll see if you're real savvy and maybe it, it doesn't take a keen eye. <laughs> there are definitely shots in the movie that are not funny. <laughs> you totally see it. Like Buddy wasn't good at running up and jumping on Josh, like, you know, up here. Yeah. So, you know, they had another dog do that. And I think that that dog looks nothing like Buddy and it kills me every time I watch that stupid shot. Um, but there are other tricks that they taught Buddy to do that uh, that he actually, you know, he's a he was a, a, a fairly easily trained dog, although he was an old dog. Um, so our agent took our script sent it out to, you know, all the studios and big production companies, and they all passed. Really? Because they all thought it was ridiculous. They all thought it was ridiculous. And then finally, um, and they, they didn't believe that, uh, you know, a dog could actually do that. And they said, you know, this is, this is a dog that can do it. He's Look at Letterman. Up. Look at America's Funniest Home Videos. He's on everything. Yeah. Couldn't, they just didn't buy it. Um, couldn't get past the gimmick. And then Keystone... Um, was this little independent Canadian company that had done pri prior to this, like erotic thrillers, <laughs> you know, like straight to video, yeah. Max and that kind of thing. I think they made one, you know, a little bit better film called Millennium or something with, I don't know, it was slightly better than some of the other stuff they made. <laughs> and they fell in love with the script and they said, we'll make this movie. And uh, that was the Vince brothers, yeah. um, William and uh, Robert. And so they optioned the script and they got Charlie Martin Smith. Hmm. And Charlie was such the perfect, perfect director for this. He had just started directing, you know, Charlie Martin Smith was the actor. He was in American Graffiti as Toad yeah. or Toady. He was in a bunch uh, of things. He had did a film called Never Cry Wolf. Now, Never Cry Wolf, uh, was directed by Carol Ballard, who did uh, Black Stallion, okay. which is one of the most beautiful boy and animal movies ever made, Black Stallion. You know it. Um, and Carol Ballard directed Charlie Martin Smith and Never Cry Wolf, which was also a similar kind of man, nature, beautiful film. So Charlie saw in Air Bud, in our script, the opportunity to make kind of a Carol Ballard-esque, Black Beauty-esque hmm. film. And Black Beauty, Black Stallion-esque film. And if you notice, and so in, in some of our rewrites for Charlie, we did play up that ballet, that dance between the boy and the dog uh, to try to kind of match that Black Stallion. If you remember the boy in the island with the, with the stallion who's fearful of him at first, but then the boy kind of gains his trust. Yeah. We did a lot of that with, with the boy and, and, and Buddy. And so we used um, Carol Ballard and Charlie Martin Smith, I think, to make the film even more kind of touching in, in that way. Um, and once Charlie was aboard, um, you know, uh, Keystone had the money. We made the film in, I don't know, fall of 96 or whenever it was up in Vancouver. Um, but the film didn't have a distributor. So they took the film wasn't even completely done yet. They cut a 20 minute trailer for the film because they were still cutting the film when AFM American film market hit that spring or whenever it was, or maybe it was the fall before. I don't remember whenever AFM was. And at AFM, we had a bidding war for the film. Really? It was very exciting. And Miramax dimension actually yeah. picked it up. They were owned um, by Disney at the time, right? They were owned by Disney at the time. So, so Dimension, it wasn't, uh, wasn't the bad uh, Weinstein. It was the good Weinstein. <laughs> Bob Weinstein. <laughs> uh, it wasn't Bob. It was the other one. Oh, Harvey's the bad yeah, one. Bob. Yeah, that's right. Bob was the good one. The less bad one. The less bad one. Uh, Bob, if you're listening, I am ever grateful. So you're the good one in my heart. Um, although you knew. I knew. I know you knew, Bob. You knew 
all along. Um, so uh, Dimension picked it up, and then they decided to uh, to release it through Disney because it only made it made sense to release yeah. it under the Disney label. So we had to do a, uh, you know, uh, they did a pass for Disney, but Disney just had one. They suggested cutting one, uh, just one shot. We used to have a shot at the end in the big game <laughs> when, you know, right before um, uh, Josh is taking the shot, you know, like Buddy's, there was always a debate. Does Buddy take the big shot? No, it's got to be Josh <laughs> yeah. taking the shot. And we said, that's, that's what we wanted. We wanted Josh to make the <laughs> shot. So my little dog is whining. <laughs> I know you wanted to take the shot, but no, it had to be Josh. <laughs> so uh josh at one point in the script we'd written that right before he takes a shot he exchanges a look with buddy which is in the movie that look yeah and he's like <laughs> do it josh in the script and, and we shot a dissolve to the uh, church uh basketball court where now Josh is alone with Buddy and he's taking the shot there and kind of doing that flashback dissolvey kind of thing. Yeah. Like Josh's head. <laughs> so we shot that and uh, Disney said, it's ridiculous. Take it out. <laughs> and they're right. It was, it was silly. I yeah. think we, we, we did a test screening and we got laughs and <laughs> you don't want to get laughs at that moment. So they cut that shot out and it's just, you know, Josh exchanging a look with Buddy and then taking the shot and making it, you know, winning the game. Uh, that was Disney's only note. Wow. So it wasn't that they wanted you to take out more of the coach throwing the basketball at one of the players and the kids crying and getting beaten up. No more of the Bob Knight stuff. No, they were okay with the Bob <laughs> Knight stuff. Here, I got to put my dog up on the bed. Hold on. Come on. Go on up. Go on up. There you go. <laughs> I don't have a golden retriever, I'm sad to say. I kind of wish I did. I got a couple of rescues, and they can be pains in the butts at times. <laughs> I'm just glad uh, to hear that you're a dog person, because I, I was worried that you wouldn't have any dogs, that you hated dogs, but I'm glad that you, uh, you, know, you went all in. No, I'm not like Maurice Sendak, you know, <laughs> hates kids. Uh, um, I think it was Maurice Sendak. Uh, I do like dogs. I have two dogs and two cats and a bird. Oh, wow. Two you got a whole zoo there. I do. <laughs> Um, so it was, so they shot the, so Disney had no notes. They released it in August of 1997 and it was, it did very well. It was not a huge hit. No, you know, it made about 25, $30 million. But yet everybody is, owned that VHS. It must've done like another hundred in home video, at least. Home video, it killed it. Home video, it really got word of mouth. It's like one of those films that, that, that I think really, everyone has it. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's funny, Udo, Uday Hussein, Saddam Hussein's son, had two copies. Really? When they raided Uday Hussein's mansion, one of them, in Iraq, they found, they commented in numerous news stories that they found all this crazy stuff because they had all inventory of the crazy stuff that was in his house. And a couple of the articles ended with the fact that he had not one, but two copies of Air Bud. And I wasn't sure whether to be horrified or kind of proud. Honestly, that's impressive. Not one, but two even, you know, you got to have one backup just in case one, you know, gets scratched or something or, you know, no right. matter what, you know. Right. Or have them in two different rooms. Exactly. Ex you know, right. while you're torturing someone, you can <laughs> actually use it to torture, you know, while at the same time. I wasn't going to say it. I wasn't going to say it, but yeah. <laughs> It was, it's, it's been this wonderful roller coaster ride success story. This little movie that kind of started out as this kind of crazy, you know, stupid pet trick. Um, I'm so delighted in how, particularly now that I have kids of my own, how after, you know, 23 years, it's become something of a, of a cultural touchstone. I, I it just delights me. You know, people say it's like, it's, our generation's air, uh, old yeller or, <laughs> yeah. you know, and just, it makes me so happy to think that the film you know, resonates to this day uh, and, and still clicks with people. Oh yeah. It spawns so many fran you know, a whole franchise. And then you have the buddies movies. I hope you're getting some of that space buddies money, by the way, I really do. <laughs> the, the space buddies, the buddies movies have put my kids through private school. Yeah. 
Um, so I, ha I don't complain about them, although I, I feel like it's after number, after, you know, space buddies, it starts to become diminishing returns. Uh, but uh, it's, I'm happy that, you know, that, uh, that kids continue to be delighted by, you know, the spinoffs and the sequels. My partner and I, my old partner and I wrote the, the two, the first yeah. two. We wrote um, right after sort of the success of Airbud One. Um, they commissioned uh, a sequel, and because the dog always was able to do all these amazing things, not just basketball, he could catch a a, a fifty yard spiral. Oh I mean, he was he would run down the field and catch a spiral. He would line up at the line of scrimmage. You'd say hike. He'd go running, and you could throw this huge bomb, and he would catch catch the ball. Uh, you know, because he was big and he was yeah. strong. He also loved hockey. Of course, Canadian. <laughs> Um, no, he was a Canadian. We just shot in Canada, but he loved hockey, but we'd use soft pucks, of course. Yeah. Um, he loved volleyball because he could pop it over the net. He liked baseball. Of course, you know, he couldn't do anything with the bat. <laughs> yeah. Although in the movie, I think in the he movie did. he's moving his mouth and hitting it out of the park. I don't know about that. Yeah, that was ridiculous, but, uh, <laughs> uh could catch a baseball, obviously. They always use softer balls, by the way. They didn't, they didn't use hard you know, balls that could hurt him when they shot it. So he was like a, a savant when it came to balls. So it was only natural for the second movie uh, to kind of shift to, um, to football. And I'm kind of proud of it, although the movie did not get great reviews. I'm proud of that we created the emotional story of a boy who uh, there's a new man entering his uh, mother's life. And he likes the guy, but he's not his dad. So at the same time, he's kind of resisting the guy. And at the same time, Buddy is showing an interest in football or his, his friends are trying to convince him to play football. And he likes football, but basketball is his sport. And um, at one point, the coach says, I think, a really wonderful line, if I may say so myself. I probably didn't write it. <laughs> it was Paul. He goes, um, Wait, Buddy likes uh, football? And the kid's like, yeah. This is after the kids running, run, ran away from home. He goes, yeah. He goes, but I thought he liked basketball. The kid's like, he really, he loves them both. <laughs> oh, so the dog loves both football and basketball. Hmm. How's that even, uh, how's that possible? And then the boy kind of sees what the coach is doing and realizes. And I think the coach says, just because... Uh, there's a new man in your mom's life. Does it mean you have to stop loving your dad? Yeah. That I think that line alone is probably worth the you know three ninety nine uh, DVD rental. Uh, although I just gave it away. <laughs> um, the movie, you know, the second one obviously didn't do as well. Uh, it's not as beloved. Um, I you know there are things about it that I regret a little bit in the writing. Uh, we went a little sillier with it. Um, we didn't have Charlie. I think that was, uh, you know, Charlie had moved on. Um, but it did, you know, it did well on video and then it spawned, you know, a whole bunch of sequels, oh, yeah. the soccer and baseball and whatever it, but it does get more challenging because it really then starts to become, you know, just a kind of repeating the trick. And I don't think anything was able to even come close to, to capture the, the original film. Yeah. No, it's it's tough because you you really make a movie that resonates, and then you try to re, you know replicate it because it does well on home video, and it's like let's just keep going, and it's tough to match that spark of the original. It is, and I you know, and it becomes something of a money grab, you know, yeah. a lot of times with sequels, and you can kind of smell it. Um, you know, there's a reason I think that did they ever do a Goonies too? You know, they did a Sandlot. You know, all these movies get a you know get a sequel at some point, or even like Mighty Ducks is coming back on Disney Plus. Like all these different things are making a comeback, and sometimes it's like great. You know, you have this IP, but I think studios like anyone else, they're risk averse, and they're like, we have something that we own already that works. Let's just run it back. And now these people have kids, and their kids are gonna love it. You know, so it's uh it's tough. Hold on, Aaron. Give me a minute to tell my listeners about Plexiderm. Summer is over and fall is upon us, unfortunately. With so much changing, it's increasingly difficult to find that extra time for you. The time that you need to take care of yourself and look your best. With Plexiderm, all you need is 10 minutes and you could look 
10 years younger. Flexiderm is a clinically studied serum that gives your appearance the right kind of changes. You could try a six application trial pack for just $14.95 with free shipping when you visit triplexiderm.com and use the code BELIEVE. Again, that's triplexiderm.com and use the code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout. Make those wrinkles, lines just disappear with Plexiderm. And now, back to the show. It's tough. You know, if it's if it's done right, yeah. it could be fine. You know, I, you know, obviously, television is essentially a series of sequels. So every season is a sequel. So if you do it right and people really love the characters and it really becomes about characters and relationships, uh, then it can work. If it becomes about trying to repeat a gimmick or you know, then it doesn't, um, you know, my hope is if, if, and when they reboot, uh, air Bud, that they, uh, stay with that post-it note that I was talking about. That really is about the boy and the dog, the yeah. boy, the, the love that the dog has for the boy or the girl, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, if you steer away from that and really kind of lean too much into the gimmick, it becomes, I think, um, kind of cheap. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, like we talked about earlier, that's why these films resonate. It's not because of the basketball scenes. It's not the images on the court or the field. It's what's happening in real life, what everyone's going through, whether you lost a parent, your parents are going through a divorce, all those different things that everyone's facing. That's what's reflected back when you watch the movie. You know? Totally. It's, it's interesting. I had a um, uh, experience recently. I was on the uh, negotiating committee for the agency. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, campaign for the Writers Guild uh, a couple years ago when I was on the board. And also on the on the negotiating committee is a television writer. I think his name is Trayvon Free. Um, I think he was a football player who became a writer. He's this big, huge guy, <laughs> uh, handsome, charismatic, massive um, African-American writer who um, came up to me at one point. He said, I heard you were the writer of uh, Air Bud. <laughs> and I said, yes, I am. <laughs> I grew up on that movie. And uh, that scene where the boy throws the ball uh, to make the dog stay on the island. He goes, I cried. I cried <laughs> every time I watched that. And the thought that I made this big guy who was like this, like a, you know, badass football player turned star writer. He's like a, a big time writer now. Uh, made me so proud that that was the scene that resonated with him was the uh, this emotional scene, which was the breakup scene, the low yeah. point of the movie, where he has to let Buddy go in order for Buddy to be able to be free. And that's the scene more than the basketball games, more than anything else that people say to me really resonated with me emotionally. And, and now I'm very proud of that. Now I don't feel as bad, you know, about tearing up during that scene because if this strong, you know, football player could do it, anyone could do it really. It's uh, yeah. it's just one of those scenes that scene of Josh floating away on the boat while Buddy is just sitting there on the island by himself. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. You know what made that so effective is the way they shot it was uh, they had Kevin, the owner, get on the boat oh. with Josh. And so they, they're literally shooting it from the boat and you can see the desperation. It's kind of sad. Um, you can see the desperation and sadness in Buddy's eyes as yeah. he's watching um, uh, Kevin and Josh, who he's befriended by now, uh, Kevin uh, 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 Zagers. Yeah. Kevin Zagers? Yeah. Another guy. Um, floating away. You see, if there were, there were people on the island. The dog was not alone. <laughs> But his owner was floating away for that shot. And you saw that forlorn look in Buddy's eyes. And he's totally, you buy it. Because yeah. for the dog in the moment, it was real. His owner was leaving him. And of course, they came back. <laughs> the dog was happy. Uh, but that shot was real. Yeah. So what do you think about, you know, the Vince brothers going on and doing a whole new franchise with the primate? They do the MVP movies, most valuable primate, most vertical primate. Were they just trying to run this back with a different animal? Is, was there a little bit of jealousy between the franchises? What happened? No jealousy. Uh, you know, by then, Paul and I had moved on. Um, um, 
I, you know, I like that they found a niche for themselves in the family animal movie franchise. <laughs> Very specific sports movies featuring animals going from the erotic thrillers to this. Yes. To sports, <laughs> do- animal sports movies. Although I think this, the chimp became a spy. I think it was like spy mate. You know, that stuff. I think at one point he was a snowboarding chimp. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, they, I, I think the world can never have enough um, animal family, animal movies. So I'm glad that, uh, Keystone uh, found a niche for themselves. Um, I'm again. I'm curious to see how they reboot uh, Air Bud, what they do with it, um, or if it's going to happen. Uh, but you know, my 15 year old still loves watching dog movies. Yeah, I know adults who still love watching Air Bud or watching Marley and Me or Beethoven. Um, there's something about animal movies uh, that really resonate with people. They're that that love, that loyalty between an animal and a human, you know, people get it and it's pure. Yeah. In all the, in this world where there seems to be so much behind relationships, there's a real purity, particularly between a, a dog and a person. And um, it resonates, it clicks with us as kids and as adults. So I, I you know, monkeys and, and, and humans, <laughs> maybe not as much, but uh, I, I think they, they will continue to make these kind of movies and they should. Was it a proud moment for you when you got to sit your kids down to watch Air Bud? How did that, how did that happen, basically? I think, you know, my wife and I were sort of like figuring out, okay, she's eight months. <laughs> is, it, is it time? Is it too early? <laughs> is it too early? Oh, that clown will probably scare the hell out of her and put her into therapy. So maybe we'll wait till like she's 10 months or 11 months. <laughs> So at one point, you know, maybe when really when she was three or four, our oldest daughter, who's now 20, um, we um, I don't remember it, but I know that uh, somewhere between Elmo, Little Einsteins uh, and maybe uh, Lion King, we (laughs) sat her down to watch Air Bud and uh, and and she loved it. And then, you know, both my kids really uh, loved the film and then were very proud as word spread through their schools that their dad was the writer of Air Bud. And then it became something of something that propped them. Oh both yeah. Up you know, <laughs> I'm, high school yeah. and then it went to hell. <laughs> I kind of wanted to ask you to do a little role-playing exercise with me. And I want you to play a Disney executive and I want to come in with three pitches for a new Air Bud movie for you. And you tell okay. me which of these three you like, okay? Okay, fire them at me. Okay, I got three. I got Airbud 2K9, which is an esports movie where Buddy, who's long retired from basketball, finds the world of NBA 2K video games and becomes literally a master, gets into the world of video games. And since the NBA just started a 2K league, ends up rising up the ranks and leading the team to victory. Maybe the Toronto Raptors esports team. What do you think? So the uh, the shots are Buddy uh, manipulating a joystick. <laughs> yes, basically the whole movie, D- doing like a dog avatar on the exactly. Uh, He's got you know he doesn't have opposable thumbs. We'll we'll make it work with CG. Uh, what else you got? <laughs> okay, how about Airbud Monday Night Paw, a wrestling movie instead of Monday Night Raw WWE Monday Night Paw, a wrestling movie where Buddy stumbles into a WWE audition teams up with a down-on-her-luck female wrestler, and they become a hit tag team duo. It's better. Better? Um, although I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about the kinds of audience that we might attract with dog wrestling scenes. <laughs> um, but uh, better, it's more physical, uh, and uh, certainly a buddy... Uh, you know, it's funny at the dog park, I see these dogs running around and they get completely run over by bigger dogs and they just roll and they get back up. So you could use some of that dog elastic, <laughs> elasticity to have him kind of like be able to bend in certain ways to be able to win the wrestling match. I like that one. Okay. I got one more for you. Uh, Air Bud fetching iron. This is where Josh now owns a, you know, a rundown gym that's losing money now with COVID and everyone going to Peloton and Mirror and all these things. But Buddy has now been able to lift weights and he's become a TikTok and YouTube sensation until there's a rival gym owner 
who claims his pit bull could bench 300 pounds, and the final scene is a big liftoff between Buddy and this pit bull. What do you think? Jordan. <laughs> Don't quit my day job, right? No, I was going to say that is a $100 million movie right there. <laughs> Just the, the shots of Buddy, you know, bench pressing with his paws and getting all buffed out like some big St. Bernard, you know, going up against the, uh, uh, the Mr. T of dogs would be like a great Dane or yeah. a, like, like a Doberman. That's a hit, dude. I'm telling you. That's the one. If I see any of these made by Disney, you know, I'm coming after you. Oh God. Uh, okay. Well, I just, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it'll be, it'll be called, uh, instead of uh, fetching iron, it'll be, pumping bones or something like that. <laughs> the other one I had was Dumbbells for Good Boys. But you know what? That was, that was just a work in progress title. That was just a working title. That sounds like a little indie art film. That, <laughs> uh, that, uh, no, that, that's not a good title. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I kind of want to, you know, uh, transition over to what you're doing at the WGA. And I think it's such an interesting time for writers right now, especially during this pandemic where a lot of production is halted and kind of the only thing you can do right now is, is write. And it really hasn't changed you know, writers day to day in terms of just staying inside and writing, um, but also kind of mirrored side by side and juxtaposed with what's going on with, you know, packaging fees and the, and the strike with the, with the agencies. And I know, I think it's just CAA and WME that are still holding out. I think everyone else has signed on to the new, uh, you know, code of conduct, but I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, how do you see, you know, the WGA standing right now in terms of being with its writers, but also facilitating a lot of development going on right now in Hollywood? Um, yeah, the pandemic and the agency campaign were kind of an interesting uh, uh, perfect storm um, that certainly affected writers um, to some degree, but not as much as our friends uh, working in production and certainly agents uh, who uh, have been, um, you know, the agencies have been having to uh, uh, do all these layoffs partially because of the pandemic and partially uh, because of our campaign, yeah, which is painful because it's really, we don't have uh, gripes or issues with the individual agents, many of whom are supportive of what we're doing. It's really the agencies and their, their, their bad practices um, that, that we're against. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting couple of years. The agency campaign, there's a lot of skepticism, but the fact that we, signed pretty much everyone but the those two big fish yeah including two of the big four agencies no one ever thought we'd get that far so i am so proud of of our guild that uh, we stuck to it uh and uh, negotiated these deals uh, it's been such a tremendous uh success um ongoing yeah we still have uh, more to go uh, but it was such an important fight because the fact that um, these agencies were getting paid by the people on the other side of the table from us, they are our fiduciaries. They represent us. They are motivated by getting commissions off of the work that they get us. So when they start getting a fee from studios and networks, um, then they don't have the same incentive to try to get us raises, to get more of their clients' work because they're getting a fixed fee and they're getting a cut of profits. So in fact, they're incentivized to reduce the cost of a production in order to get to profit faster. Yeah. It's completely backwards. Yeah. And I think it's important just, just really quickly, just for my listeners who don't know what's going on and don't know what packaging fees are. And, and please correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I believe, you know, how it used to work. Agencies would say, we don't, I know we talked about this earlier with, you know, buddy, but if you have Christopher Nolan as your director and Leonardo DiCaprio as your actor that you represent, you know, your agency represents them both, you package them, you sell them as a team and you would take, you know, maybe 10, 15% off, off the top, right? You wouldn't collect an individual fee from either of them. You would just say, Hey, I'm going to take 15% of gross profits and that's it. I'm not taking, you know, 10% or whatever it is of each actor or, or talents, you know, salary. Almost kind of. Okay. It's actually, they, um, instead of traditionally packaging used to be what you said, which is that they take a bunch of their clients, uh, and, uh, and, uh, get them booked on a show or a film and take commissions. Instead, they started collecting, um, not just a piece of pro uh, profit, although they do, they would collect a piece of the budget oh, yeah. of every film, particularly in television. Television is where it was really uh, problematic and endemic. They would start collecting um, a piece of the budget of every episode, a fixed 
uh, uh, fee percentage of the budget of every episode. So regardless of how many actors or writers or directors they booked into that, that episode, they would just collect that same fee. Um, so they were getting paid often more per episode than the creator of the show who was spending uh, hundreds of hours of, you know, a week, it yeah. felt like, um, uh, devoting all this time and effort to the show. Her agency was getting uh, more money per episode than she was. Um, and then they were also getting paid uh, when the film would go to profit. Uh, before the writers, before any of the profit participants, they were taking that that ten percent off the top or whatever yep. it was, which just de incentivized them uh, to work for their clients. Particularly once if that packaging fee was negotiated even before the pilot was ever written, now they're just kicking back, getting that money regardless of if they book a single other person ever again. Yeah, might have booked the star and the and the writer, and that's good but they don't have to lift another finger in eight seasons of a show and they'll still get a percentage of, uh, of every budget and they'll get uh, that profit and not have to really lift another finger. It is wrong. It's a bad practice. It really rose in the, you know, eighties, seventies, eighties, nineties in television primarily. It, it stuns to some degree in film too, uh, but it became a big problem in TV agents are not even doing the packaging like we mentioned they just may be giving you know just putting the writer on the show and, and they're still taking their fee and that's the big issue and i kind of want to just play devil's advocate for a second and just go you know you have two parties in this negotiation you have the writers guild and you have these agencies aren't do you think we're missing the studio component because i think a lot of people think that the studios if that money is not going to the agent's pocket they're just going to give it to the talent and i think any studio who's self-motivated self-interested as shareholders they're just going to pocket that money themselves. Do you think we're missing a third party to the table here? Well, that was, interestingly, that was the argument the agencies have made to us is uh, all this uh, money that all these packaging fees, the studios are just going to pocket it. And then our response to that is then do your damn jobs. Your job is to go get that money. Yeah. To go get raises, to go put more of your clients into the film and get that money. You know that money's there. They've been paying it for decades. Yeah. So go get it. And that is your job as an agent is to pry those pennies and dollars out of their pockets and get us, get the talent more money. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, uh, that was kind of a weak, uh, a weak argument that they kind of stopped using after a while. I think the, the toughest thing or, you know, uh, the, the hard thing for, or the way they were able to sell it to writers and actors, directors is we're not going to take commissions. You guys, we're not going to take our 10%. We're going to take a packaging fee. You can get 100% of your fee. It sounds good until you start seeing what's happening to your show, which yeah. is that you're not getting raises. More of your uh, colleagues are not getting hired. Uh, profits are getting siphoned away and not trickling down. So it becomes a little bit of a smoke and mirrors uh, technique that they use to, uh, to steal money. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because I think some agents, uh, some you know, writers, actors, talent, they don't see that. They just see, oh, wow, I'm getting a break on this. You know, I'm not having to pay that 10, 15%. This is great until you see there's a bigger chunk of the pie that you're completely missing out on that you never see. Um, but I think it's just tough just in unions in general because you have to represent everyone's interest. You have to represent Leonardo DiCaprio, but also just somebody just starting out making scale. You know, so it's really tough. And I think those people at the bottom are like, you know, I know maybe agents don't take commission off scale, but even if they're getting paid above that, where it's like, hey, I need anything I could get. You know, I'm not going to be in the profits. I'm not getting any back end on this. I just need as much money as I can. Let the agent take that, you know, commission on the on the off the top because I need as much money coming to me and my family. But you have to represent everyone's interest. And that's a really tough thing to do as a union. Yeah, it's true. <clears throat> we, the last thing we want to do is uh, take more money out of uh, a, a writer's pocket. But we saw, we did the math, we did the calculus, and we saw over the decades how writers' income have been flat, particularly as uh, as more and more shows were being uh, packaged, getting package yeah. fees. We were seeing writers' income really mm -hmm. flattening out and fewer of our writers getting hired. And, uh, you know, staffs were shrinking. And while their profits were skyrocketing, particularly with the growth of global, uh, you know, uh, the global market for television, a lot of shows were in profit before they even put it up 
on NBC or they put it up on, on uh, Netflix, they've already gone into profit because of all the global sales. Yeah. So we saw the math. We saw how that money was not coming to writers or directors or actors for that matter. And we made a very convincing case to the membership that, uh, yeah, uh, we're going to really stick to the commission structure because that's what, that's how we've always, that's how agents work for us. Yeah. Uh, but it will help uh, writers as a whole if we can do away with packaging in, in television. And as you mentioned, it aligns the interest and aligns the incentives, which is most important. You know, if they yeah. want more money, they got to negotiate a bigger fee for their talent. Exactly. So we're, we're seeing the fruits of it a lot fewer shows. I mean, really no shows are being yeah. packaged, although they're still trying to get away with it by using, uh, you know, IP as the packaging element or using a big name director or actor as that packageable element that they'll sell to, to uh, Netflix. But then they can't use a Writers Guild writer because mm -hmm. the rules are that a Writers Guild writer cannot um, uh, work on a, uh, with a company that hasn't signed the, uh, code of conduct. So they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. And eventually they're going to need to go back to Shonda Rhimes and Aaron Sorkin and John Wells and all these big television writers, as well as the mass of new talent and sign the, the contract so that they can have uh, showrunners as well as everyone, uh, below that again, right now they don't, those two agencies don't have them. Yeah. It's such an interesting time, especially with, you know, agencies getting into the production business and you have, you know, William Morris and Endeavor Studios and, and content and, you know, they have allegedly this Chinese wall between them, but it's, it's amazing as these, you know, so-called agencies get into other areas of the business because there's, there's money to be made, right? And that's ultimately what drives it. And it's, uh, you just, you just hope that there is that barrier there and, um, you know, there is no sort of, you know, back-ended deal on the side that, you know, nobody sees. There always is, and they'll always find a way to uh, puncture uh, a hole in the dike, um, because you know that's capitalism. Yeah, and uh, you know we, all we can do is the Writers Guild, with the power that we have, which is powerful. I mean, the Writers Guild is one of the strongest uh, uh, unions, I believe, in the United States, and it's because we are such skilled workers. We have such a special skill that you can't just go pluck uh, a kid out of film school. I mean, occasionally you can. There's a lot of great talent out there, but there's something about um, the rarefied talent that Writers Guild members have to write film and television that people love worldwide. Yeah. It makes, makes us a very strong union. Uh, and, uh, but they're always trying to find ways to, uh, you know, to poke holes in our, uh, in our barricade. <laughs> Uh, Aaron, you've been so generous with your time. We end every episode on five rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm, I'm ready. I was hoping you would lighten things up after the- <laughs> I know, that's a lot. That's a lot. Union politics that we got into there. <laughs> maybe, I ended, maybe I should have ended with the uh, pitching of new Airbud ideas. I don't know. <laughs> um, a union rep, uh, buddy, becomes like a union rep <laughs> and it becomes like about breaking, breaking pause and that kind of ah, thing. Ah, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Like on the waterfront, but with, uh, with the dog. There you go. There you go. Uh, first question, any TV shows that you're currently binge watching? Yes. Um, Ozark. Uh, I just got through succession, which I love and I can't wait till it comes back. And I've been watching with my 15 year old daughter, Hannah on Amazon and we've been enjoying that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I was going to ask, are you a dog person or do you own any dogs? But that question has been answered. So I have to ask you, do they play any sports? Um, sadly, no. We've tried to do fetch with, uh, with my dogs and they will run up to the ball and sniff it and then walk away. And that's about as sporty as they get. Gotcha. Uh, favorite sports movie aside from Air Bud? Well, I just watched the other day, again, The Natural and it's so good, so good. Uh, I love that. It's so magical and wonderful. Uh, you know, I think Robert Redford was like 97 when he made that film. <laughs> He's still just, it just, it was so wonderful. And it just sort of captured the, the spirit and the magic of baseball. So I would say the natural. Yeah. Those early scenes, he still looks 50, but I, I still believe it that he's 20 or whatever he's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's, he's timeless. Uh, when you wrote the line, ain't no rule says a dog can't play basketball, did you realize how genius that line was as you wrote it? 
No, in fact, we were concerned when we wrote that line that we had heard that somewhere. Um, like there was some line in some movie that said, ain't no rule that girls can't something <laughs> like bad news. You know, it sounded like it sounded like it made so much sense that we must have been stealing it from something. But to this day, I'm not sure, you know, maybe the line was just so perfect that it felt like it felt like we were stealing it. But I love that that line uh, gets quoted uh, a lot. Uh, I think that's great. I think my favorite line is when the during the final game, the opposing coach is like, force him to his left. <laughs> it's just like, you're just screaming these random things. He's like, stay in front of him, force him to his left. That's a travel. Just all those little things. I just love. <laughs> that guy was the opposing coach was our second unit director. And he was so good at coming up with these sort of ad lib, you know, dog focused uh, <laughs> basketball lines. It was just great. The biggest issue that we had shooting this in Vancouver is um, a finding enough uh, like uh, middle schoolers who could play basketball, and b having diversity in the cast. It was such a you know kind of we had all these uh, extras and kids that were brought to us. were just all these white kids, and a lot of them couldn't play basketball. So it was, uh, and I got to hand it to Charlie and the Vince brothers, really trying to uh, you know make it feel more like a you know a real basketball team. And adding a dog to it to yeah. really make it diverse. So that just, thank you for bringing that up because I have to ask you, during the movie, I see several shots of the scoreboard that says 20 minutes left in each quarter. This would mean it's what, 20, 40, 60, an 80 minute game. NBA games are 48 minutes. College basketball games are 40 minutes. This was a 80 minute basketball game for what, 11 year olds? Um. <laughs> I don't know if that was the director or if that was in the script. I don't know what happened there. I, maybe they were 20 minute halves. I don't know if it was, uh, I don't think it was quarters. Maybe it's 20 minute halves. Cause it's maybe showing it's like first period, third period. Like it goes first period, then the second, then the third. So I'm not, I'm not letting you out of this one. Okay. All I have to say is <laughs> basketball made in Canada. Someone screwed up it was not that was not in the script someone when they shut the second unit when they did the the scoreboard somehow that and that's the first time i've really that. You caught that oh yeah I, i'm uh, fascinated with uh, making sure the basketball or any sports scenes feel and look authentic so i'm always on the eye for looking at certain things and whether it matches up continuity wise but i think that in hoosiers where they're just showing the same shot in multiple angles it's the same exact shot just multiple angles so I'm always on the lookout for these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're the guy that ruins. Uh, you're the one that like taps the guy next to him and says, "Yeah, it says 20 minutes a quarter. Do you see that?" Yes. Yeah, and guys like shut the hell up and let me enjoy the film. <laughs> God, uh, last one. Do you think there's a chance? I know we we touched on it. Do you think there's a chance we see another Airbud movie? I think the volleyball one, Airbud Spikes Back, was the last one of the Airbud movies released in 2003. Do you think we get another one? I think what they're going to do is restart it and probably start back with basketball. I, God knows if they're going to venture into football and soccer and all that again, or if it's going to be a television show versus a film. I don't know what the plan is. There's part of me that hopes they don't remake Air Bud because it really felt like catching lightning in a bottle. And I'm not sure if the, 2021 iteration of Air Bud is going to be quite the same. It'll probably have CG in it. And I was just going to say, that. yeah, I'm not sure if it'll quite have the same magic. So uh, uh, if they do it, I wish them luck. But, uh, you know, I feel like um, we really caught something magical with that first film. Yeah, I don't know if I need to see, you know, Buddy jumping from the free throw line and dunking the ball. Like, I don't know if I need to see that. No, that would be that would be horrible and it'll probably make a hundred million dollars <laughs> are you a basketball fan yourself i just want to end on that i i am to some degree uh, you know i'll turn on the lakers uh and uh but uh, no i'm not a hardcore fan when i wrote the script paul and i had to do a lot of research to <laughs> get get some of the language right even if we may have screwed up the quarters <laughs> uh but uh but yeah go lakers okay <laughs> aaron thank you so much for your time i really appreciate you coming on it's my pleasure, Jordan. Uh, uh, always happy to talk about uh, my favorite dog sports movie. <laughs>
I would like to thank my guest, Aaron Mendelson, for coming on the podcast. I appreciate him being a good sport as I was uh, pitching him some of those ideas for Airbud films. But I'm serious. If I do see an Airbud Monday Night Paw movie come out on Disney Plus, I'm gunning for him. Next week, we're going to be joined by one of the cast members of All That, Elisa Reyes, who of course also voices La Cienega on The Proud Family. You can subscribe to the Relunchables podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave us a rating or review, five stars only. Until next time. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube